Welcome to Securiosity for December 20th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm General Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. There's been some changes at DHS's cyber leadership. We'll break down who's left, where they are going, and who's new among the leadership in CISA. In our interview, we talk with serial entrepreneur Marty Roche about what it's been up to and how cybersecurity scene has changed over the decades-long career. The VCs got their checkbooks out to close the year. We will review all of the money that's been announced over the past two weeks. But first, let's get to the end of the year when it comes to cybersecurity news. Jeanette Manfra, top leader in DHS's CISA department, is stepping down at the end of the year. She will be heading off to Google to become Director of Security and Compliance for the tech giant's cloud division. Manfred will be replaced by Brian Ware, a tech-savvy entrepreneur and holder of multiple patents, to be the department's most senior official focused exclusively on cybersecurity. Greg, what does that mean for DHS going forward? So I don't know that you're necessarily going to see a lot change. Uh, I think Jeanette did a good job of helping CISA lay the groundwork for how they've matured over the year and how they plan to execute on their goals in 2020, specifically with election security. What does it mean going forward? I I think you're just going to see a lot of uh, the same. Uh, Brian Ware coming aboard, I I think that you're going to start to see maybe some more entrepreneurial spirit, knowing Brian's background, because I know you know Brian from his Haystacks Mm -hmm. days, so you know what he can do from the private side of things and, and how he can sort of leverage the growth of machine learning, AI, whatever it is that you want to call it, um, he's his you know he's got that background, and I think that you're obviously going to see that be uh, implemented inside CISA. So um, I, I think you're going to see just a, a deeper dive into the technological aspects of uh, cybersecurity. And then uh, for uh, Jeanette, I, I think this is a really big move for Google Cloud, and it shows. Uh, the effort that the company is putting into their cloud, the growth of their cloud unit. I mean, there was a story, I think, in the information this week that came out that said uh, Larry Page and uh, the rest of Alphabet kind of sat down and said, okay, we need to make a push. And yeah. it's either it's either we go all in or we just shut it down right now. And they've made a push now. The story came out that said that Google's trying to become either the one or two market share leader in cloud computing by 2023. And if they don't get there by 2023, they'll shut it down. And I know Google Cloud's starting to make big inroads in D.C. Because obviously if you want to grow your cloud business, what better way to grow it than to go to, you know, one of the biggest customers uh, in the world in the U.S. federal government. Sure, and you're and so, you're bringing someone in that's, that's well-respected right. and, and known in that community. Right, and so even though, uh, you know, Jeanette's not – I don't believe she's on the federal team. Uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, they're going to pick her brain for insights. How how would you not? That's just bad business if you don't. So um, uh, it's, you know, interesting to see the uh, shift here, but it's very strategic on both DHS's and uh, Google Cloud's parts moving forward into 2020. I mean, I'm I'm really excited to see Brian there. I think, you know, he brings in a perspective of of having seen all the cybersecurity startups. Um, in the area and really a, a deep expertise on technology. Right. And I think that is going to be crucial, getting not just the, uh, you know, not just thinking about it from a technological standpoint, but from a startup standpoint, from the standpoint of what technology is out there that the government could be utilizing that's out there in the startup world that they're not already utilizing. I think that, that you're, you're probably going to see that start to be brought in with Brian in there. And you never know. Maybe he'll get them to move a little bit quicker. Hey, they they could always do that. So customers from Pittsburgh-based PNC Bank have complained in recent months that they can no longer transfer funds to their Venmo accounts. The change disrupted financial transfers and has resulted in a public back and forth between Venmo and the bank. Now, Venmo has told users to tweet complaints at PNC, and in turn, PNC has encouraged frustrated customers to move to Zelle, which is a Venmo competitor operated by a network of banks, including PNC. Uh, PNC customers can still use Venmo by manually entering their account information, but the dust-up demonstrates the power that major firms like PNC have to influence other smaller firms throughout their supply chain to harden defenses or even just change their behavior in the name of stronger security. So, Jen, do you think this is more of a business tactic, or do you think this is a true security issue here? What's your take? This kind of reminds me of, have you ever seen um, an ad on a TV station to like, don't cancel this channel on cable? I mean, it's it's kind of like what this looks like to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Venmo was- So scare was, tactic, basically. Yeah, like I think Venmo was, was smart in having people 
that like Venmo and use Venmo to say, hey, PNC, we're customers. We want to be able to use it in an easier way. Um, you know, I think it's a 50-50 shot on whether or not they're just trying to throw business to Zelle, which they're part of, or if there actually is some sort of security breach here. Yeah, to me, it just seems that it's a business tactic. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think – I mean – if there was truly a really big security issue with Venmo, I think all of these banks would come out and say, please stop using Venmo because they would want to protect their users and also they would want to protect their money. Right. For PNC itself to just jump out and say, mm, you know what, forget this. We're, we're, use the one we're invested in. Yeah, we're going to use the one we're invested in. I think if there was more of a push of the group behind Zelle like, collectively – I would go, hmm, maybe there is a security issue here. This just looks like a business tactic to me that's cloaked in security. So I, I get it. I, I mean, mean I, I get it totally. But at, at the same time, don't don't lie to your users. Don't do not do that. Like it, it, security, if Venmo's secure then from, from its own infrastructure side of things, then you know, you're just lying for the sake of business. Well, and I also think that you know, if you start getting comfortable using Venmo, you're going to want to use Venmo. Um, right. So it'll probably, in the end of the day, PNC will probably go back to making it easier to use. It's just smart on their part. So the U.S. Navy issued an internal warning in 2017 about vulnerabilities in systems made by Chinese-based drone company DJI that could allow adversaries to siphon data from devices, according to a document obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. In the warning, the Navy pointed out issues with the way DJI drone communicates and sends data to ground stations. The letter's public release was followed by a group of Republican senators sending a letter to the Department of Transportation and Federal Aviation Administration asking them to exclude Chinese drones, particularly DJI drones, from future partnerships due to national security concerns. Greg, is this going to be a trend moving forward in 2020? I wouldn't be surprised because now we're starting to see the information trickle out about DJI and what exactly it is that has the government worried. And it's... Remind us what, why they're worried. So they're worried because of the way, primarily in the Navy letter, some of the details were... And this this letter came... Uh, this letter was produced in 2017. So this letter says that the Navy had issues with the way that DGI drones transferred data back to their ground control station, basically the, the controllers or the hubs that uh, were used to collect that data. They weren't encrypted very well. It was a weak sort of encryption if they were encrypted at all. And if uh, an adversary knew how to pry into it, they could siphon off that data or even shut off a machine or, or take it over in mid-use. And then also there's, you know, some hardening that needed to be done if they were to be used on a military level, particularly around like uh, uh, an EMP, like an extra electromagnetic pulse. Uh, they were prone to being manipulated through uh, radio frequencies. Like there were some holes there. Now, DJI has come out in a bunch of the stories that we've written and said, look, we've, we've gotten all up to these standards. We're moving towards these standards but back when everything was produced like in 2017 we weren't on those standards which okay i understand it but at the the same time i think dji has really started to drag their feet when it comes to this stuff so it, it gets wrapped up in the geopolitical and intelligent collection controversies that we have when it comes to chinese law like it doesn't like DJI could have all of the protections in the world, but because they're a Chinese-based company, the Chinese government can say, on behalf of Chinese intelligence agencies, we need to look at X, Y, and Z when it comes to the data that your guys collecting. And then what's DJI going to do? Say no on behalf of the American government? Like that's not going to happen. So I think that's what you're really going to see. DJI could be the most secure drone in the world, but if they're beholden to China law, what can you do? I mean, why are we just now reacting to the letter from 2017? Well, I think because it was just made public. We were the one of the only outlets to get this through a FOIA request, so that takes some time. But at the same time, um, but I mean, it just seems know, like a long time to make something public. The government um, likes to classify things. I mean, I don't want to say this. This wasn't classified by any stretch, but I mean, this is that. That's how the but government we were works. Reacting. I mean, I, you know, I guess. 
I guess having not read um, the letter from the senators, I guess if they're just now writing a letter, it almost suggests that nobody's sort of been acting on um, this at all until now. Well, yeah, I mean, once the Navy report came out, I think that's when the Army turned around and banned them from uh, use in okay. the Army. And then there was a, a an Idaho National Lab study done on behalf of DHS that we obtained earlier this year that said a lot of the same things. Basically, there were some issues with the way that data was transferred, but also a lot of the report said it was like that unknown, unknown type thing where they were like, look, we don't know what the supply chain is here. We don't know what other zero days are out here. We don't know if there's any back doors because of the way that these products are made. So until we get a more robust examination of everything that goes into DJI, we just shouldn't use them for U.S. government purposes. If you, still, if you still want to use them to go take some cool photos uh, on the beach or while you're hiking in the mountains, knock yourself out. But if you're going to be using these as part of, uh, you know, government technology and then carrying out missions, especially um, ones that are very, very sensitive for the military, uh, let's – you should probably pass else, on yeah. that. So Hackensack Meridian Health, based in Edison, New Jersey – said December 13th it was working to restore its computer systems following a December 2nd ransomware attack that forced administrators to cancel roughly 100 elective medical procedures. The nonprofit, which operates 17 clinics and hospitals, cautioned that no patients were harmed as a result of the attack. It did not say how much it paid, however, and it did pay ransomware attackers to unlock medical systems. This comes on the heels of New Orleans being hit by a ransomware attack that led to officials declaring a state of emergency in the city. Jen, speaking of 2020 trends, I don't think we're going to see ransomware go away anytime soon. No way. Not if we're still paying it out. I mean, it's just going to continue. Yeah. The... It just seemed like it was so easy for New Jersey to just be like, uh, okay. And if we're only talking 100 elective medical procedures, like we've been trying to research this story more and more, and it seems like 100 elective medical procedures would be worth just canceling instead of paying out whatever this ransom was. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the ransom was, but I would imagine given all the trends that it was probably five figures, six figures maybe. I don't know. I think if you're if you're paying it out at all, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like a hundred elective medical procedures is probably a lot of cash that the hospital system's not obtaining. Um, it also backlogs everything too, so right. it is probably a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess I did not look at it that way uh, through thinking about it. Just I, I just read that word elective, and I figure, well, okay, nobody's like this is not a law loss of life that we're talking no about but i here. mean it could be like i need to get my appendix out and while it's not like super elective <laughs> it can go a couple it's days a, it's right? a good point right you know right that's... yeah it's, it's elective right now <laughs> three months three months from now it, it You're could dead. be an issue yeah. right um on the new orleans side of things that, that was really interesting from the standpoint of how hard they seem to be hit and how well they recovered because it seemed like everything got back to at least a working speed pretty quickly. And uh, I'm wondering if it had a lot to do with actually declaring a state of emergency, because when you declare that state of emergency, there are some like regulations or some mandates that like that frees up money or that frees up emergency yeah. resources. Like there's a legal way to go about it. And I'm wondering if we're not going to start to see more of that in order just to recuperate quickly for these cities where they can declare a state of emergency in the same way like a state might declare a state of emergency and hurricane cleanup or a bad winter storm or something like that in order to uh, deploy more resources and get things back to normal quicker. I mean, I think you can do that when a city gets hit, but I think um, like a hospital system, right? I don't, I don't know how you... Oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that would be some intervention from the state and that's, that's an entirely different legal scenario that I don't think the state or the hospital system wants to get into. What I wonder, you know, is anyone getting caught um, in, in terms of being a ransomware attacker? Have we seen any cases go to court yet? I don't think so, only because you're talking about 
I mean, who knows where in the world they yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, yeah. let's just say uh, hypothetically, uh, and it, this is an educated guess, the majority of these are coming from Eastern Europe. Yeah. Or, or you know, uh, ex-Russian states. Um, you're going to go extradite them? You're going to no. go extradite all of them? So and then that's, how, about, how about insurance, right? Are we seeing... A, are we seeing insurance cover these ransomware attacks for the most part or or no? Or do we not know? Well, that I mean, that goes the whole back all the way back to the conversation that we've been having about whether insurers consider it an act of war. Right. Because it's it's an attack and it, it could be, you know, what if we figure out that the hackers were working on behalf of the Russian government and or knows, some other government are, or something yeah. like that? Um, or North Korean government or something like that, then you're starting to get into statecraft and then it goes beyond the, the legal boundaries of a you know insurance coverage. That conversation needs to be had where I, I, I don't believe that act of war junk. I, I just don't. I just don't believe that it necessarily can be categorized like that. Sure, I think that's a cop-out. Right. So, um, yeah. I mean, these are all the things that we talk about every time this comes up and I'm sure we're going to be talking about them into 2020. And probably longer than that. So Judge Paul Crody of the U.S. Southern District of New York declared the trial of Joshua Schultz will begin on February 3rd, 2020, nearly a month after anticipated January 12th trial's start, and three months after the previously scheduled date of November 4th, 2019. The decision comes after a long series of delays from Schultz's defense attorneys, who have argued they needed the court to add another lawyer to the defense. And they have failed to understand some of the government's allegation against Schultz, despite repeated explanations from prosecutors. The 31-year-old former CIA software engineer has been held in Manhattan's Metropolitan Correctional Center on charges that he stole national defense information and sent it to WikiLeaks, which then published a trove of CIA hacking tools known as the Vault 7 Files. Greg, sounds like a lot of patience has run thin here. Yeah, uh, the judge... Look, this has been a mess. We've talked about it before, mm-hmm. just about how bad of a mess it really is. And the judge seems to finally be like, okay, enough of these pretrial motions, enough of trying to divvy up all of the charges against other lawyers. Enough, <laughs> enough, enough, enough. Yeah. This trial is going to occur. It's going to happen. And we need to let justice you know, move forward here. Uh, this has just been a mess. It's been fascinating to watch. Um, it, it has that car wreck quality to it where you can't look away despite the fact that it's a complete mess. And uh, I wonder what it portends for the actual trial here. It just seems like it's, it's going to be an absolute mess <laughs> until we have a verdict. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's probably going to last a while, um, you know, guilty. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> if it could only be that quick, I bet the judge would, would like it to be that sure quick at would, this point. Yeah. I'm sure he would. So a federal judge, a different federal judge, ruled Tuesday that <laughs> any money former NSA contractor Edward Snowden makes from his memoir or paid speeches must be given to the U.S. government because he did not receive approvals before the book was published. The judge notes in his decision that Snowden's non-disclosure agreements with the government were unambiguous and required him to submit any writings for pre-publication review. The book, entitled Permanent Record, went on sale in September. Jen, are you surprised at this outcome? I'm not, but I guess I also wonder at what point um, your non-disclosure sort of ends right whether We're there's, there's a time there's a time limit on yeah. it right um not well not only that i also feel and this was an argument made in court where it was like um this has all been out there like it has all been out there so why are we going to it's it's not in the public do it's in the public domain from a common sense sense sure but not from a legal sense and i think that's where the argument sort of lied and i think that's why the government was like no okay i mean yeah it's in the public domain because you put it in the public domain and you're being charged with a crime for doing so so no we're not going to let that loophole uh stop us from trying to collect anything and to be very honest i'm He's smart enough to, I believe, know that this was going to be a possibility all along, and he didn't care. Like, he wanted to put his 
record out there. It's called the permanent record. Right. I mean, the, the the underlying theme behind that is I want to, you know, put this out there for everybody. The the motive there just in the title to me sounds like oh, I, I don't care about the money on the side of things. I need to tell my own story. I mean, let's be honest. Um, the fact that this sort of went to court and it's been a thing in the news, I feel like it has put a bigger spotlight on him again um, and made it a little bit more important because I think by the fact that, again, as you said, you know, most of this stuff is common sense in the public domain, but because they went after him again, it sort of makes it think like, oh, maybe I should buy this because maybe I'm going to learn something I didn't know already. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's been really interesting, too, to see the the arguments around, especially with all of the whistleblower talk mm-hmm. in D.C. and how the whistleblowers that have come out against what is allegedly going on with this Ukraine stuff. And there's been a lot of national security people that have said, oh, this shows that the whistleblower system works. And then some whistleblowers, including Sony, have turned around and said, look how bad they're being vilified, like by the by the government. Uh, right. You know, look at what happened to uh, Sunderland and Vindman and Fiona Hill and um, y- Yovanovich. I believe that's her last name. They're all raked across the coals. And Snowden has made the point to be like, this is why people don't blow the whistle because they're just, you know, thrown through the the mud f- forever. The, you know, there, there's no real rock bottom when it comes to that. So th- this is why I, I did what I did and why I put out this book. And yeah. now you can see where my motives make sense that I'm not a lunatic. But at, I mean, I kind of agree with him there. But at the same time, I'm not surprised the government turned around and said, you're not making a dime from this. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just a it's such a thin line with whistleblowing on um, are you being a traitor to the United States or are you actually blowing a whistle? Right. And I think that's sort of the I'm not sure anyone exactly agrees on the Snowden case one way or the other. Right. I think it's of kind of a divided yep. issue. <laughs> So a company that sells content management software and services exposed data on 477,000 media contacts, including 35,000 hash user passwords to the public internet. In October, IPR Software, a U.S.-based company that specializes in software that manages and disseminates public relations and marketing, was discovered to be exposing the data along with administrative system credentials and assorted documents. After security researcher Chris Vickery reached out, the company didn't budge. When CyberScoop reached out, the bucket was closed within a week. Greg, tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, so IPR Software runs content management systems and digital asset management systems for companies that, you know, for their PR purposes, for their marketing purposes. Like when you see, I don't know, some of the companies that they have are like Dunkin' Donuts, AAA, Forever 21. So like when Forever 21 puts out a press release that, I don't know, some big pop star just launched their big clothing line with Forever 21. Okay. Uh, they do that on IPR or IPR software. They do it on that platform. Those oh, platforms are okay. inside the companies. Okay. But uh, there was a Amazon Web Services Open cloud, I mean, we've talked about these a ton, where um, uh, 477,000 media contacts were just out in the open. If you knew the URL, where to go find this, you could punch it up, just like it was Google.com. Like, just throw it on there. Um, When I initially, uh, you know, it, it was funny when we were doing the reporting for the story, I called them up and was like, look, this is happening. Uh, they did not receive that well because they weren't they didn't quite understand what I was getting at and came close to being like are, are is this like extortion like are you are you like are you hacking us like what's going on I was like, like you yeah, as, yeah. In, as in me as in okay. yes I was, <laughs> I was no no like I, I didn't take offense to that like I, I've had that happen before um but I was like no that's it's not what this is about um just here's here's the technical details and i i was uh, you know uh source gave me technical details and gave it to them and said figure it out and they called me back a week later and they were like thank you very much uh you were in fact right 
and this was a problem and we closed it. So everything is great. Thank you. And uh, really appreciate it. So, I mean, it's good in the standpoint that they understood the flaw, but at the same time, like, again, these are buckets. Like, these are simple AWS buckets. And like, this is compliance. Like, click right. the button that says make this private. Right. So, yeah. Um, Interesting. So, a researcher reached out to them and said, here's the researcher, your issue. Yeah, the researcher said, I'm... It, and they were uh, kind was, of like... Chris reached we out, said in the email, said, "I'm not doing this for any sort of sales pitch. I'm not. I, I'm doing this because I found this, and this is bad for the safety of the internet." And they ignored him. And Chris turned around to me and said, "Can you help out on this?" Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I mean, you have to, right? A reporter calls closing, you. You have to closing have to AWS react. buckets one story at a time. <laughs> nice. Okay, so to the business side of things for the past couple weeks, um, a bunch of uh, money flying around on all different levels. Um, the Excito Corporation, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, a San Jose, California-based provider of a secure firewall platform received a $10 million investment in the form of a convertible note. Orbit Venture Partners made the investment, and this startup offers a secure firewall platform that eliminates breaches at the perimeter of existing networks and cloud infrastructures. CodeDX, a North Point, New York-based application security management solution, raised $2 million in seed funding. That was provided by Datatribe. The company is going to use that to scale up its sales and marketing activities to increase brand awareness. CyberGRX, who we've talked to Fred Knight uh, on a bunch of different bases, they provide a global cyber risk exchange, raised $40 million in Series D funding. Round was led by Iconic with participation from existing adventures like Allegis, Bessemer, Blackstone, ClearSky, GV, Mass Mutual, Scale Venture, and 1011. So everybody's getting in on this cyber risk exchange. Secure Code Warrior, a global secure coding company, secured a Series B funding round of $47.6 million. Round was led by Goldman Sachs with participation from ForgePoint, Cisco, Airtree, and Paladin. Uh, on the acquisition side of things, Acronis, a Switzerland and Singapore-based leader in cyber protection, acquired 5.9, a global provider of Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure cloud management and security solutions. And earlier this week, LogMeIn, agreed to be acquired by affiliates of Francisco Partners and Elliott Management Corp at a purchase price totaling roughly $4.3 billion. And then finally, back on the Series A side, our friends at RunSafe Ventures closed a $6.3 million Series A round with Alsup, Louis, Interloop Capital, Renegade Ventures, and the group sitting across from me at the table, CIT Gap Ventures. Um, I mean, obviously, RunSafe is one of my portfolio companies, so it's, you know, got a special place in my heart. But I think the exciting one here is CodeDX. Um, they won the Data Tribe Challenge. Um, it is female-led, um, which is, you don't see very often. Okay. Um, in a cybersecurity company, um, at least not venture-backed ones. Um, and so I think it's really interesting, um, you know, Data Tribe um, looked far and wide um, to find um, what they thought were the most promising companies um, to be sort of the finalists in this competition, and, and CodeDX sort of won out that, um, which means they'll have a lot of data tribe time um, helping them build the company further and um, probably finding them their next round of capital. Yeah. Uh, do you know, talk to us a little bit more about their platform, which makes their platform so interesting. So I don't know the company very well, so I'm okay. not the not the person to ask. Okay, yeah. we're not. <laughs> but on so on the RunSafe side of things, though, how, how do you see that company growing, and what do you see for Joe and his cohort moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think this has a potential to be a pretty big company. Um, you know, I guess it's probably been about a year since they raised capital. Prior to this, um, they've been with us for a while. Um, we were actually investors in a company called Caprica um, that their CTO um, was the founder of, um, and, and the RunSafe technology is part um, Caprica technology. Um, and then there's another company um, sort of in stealth mode that's also running off of some Caprica technology as well. Um, and, you know, I think the, the CTO of this company is, is really one of the smartest, brightest minds 
um, in the space. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to see uh, what happens here. All right. All right. And with that, we will go to our interview with uh, Marty Roche. Uh, Marty's been around in the cybersecurity scene for uh, a while. Marty was big on uh, SourceFire back mm-hmm. in uh, the 90s. So we talked to Marty about uh, what it was like, you know, coming up um, in the 90s through the 2000s into right now with SourceFire. Creating Snort. Yeah, creating Snort. All of the background and all of the tools that are commonplace among everybody in cybersecurity. We talk about uh, the business behind that and what he plans to do in the future. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Marty Roche, an entrepreneur specifically concentrating on cybersecurity. Marty, thanks for joining us this week. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So Marty, we know each other um, through Threat Quotient um, and love to hear more about how you got in cybersecurity and sort of your early days in the industry. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, you got to go way back into the mists of time into the uh, mid-90s. That's when I first got... um, Going in cybersecurity, I was uh, working as a um, government contractor uh, for uh, an organization that did a lot of work um, at uh, Fort Meade and, um, you know, uh, other (coughs) places that required clearances to work. And um, I got going on uh, cybersecurity contracts um, shortly after I joined uh, this uh, company. And... um, I was, you know, kind of fascinated by the problem. My background is, uh, you know, my degrees in computer engineering, and I grew up in the in the eighties and and uh, early nineties, and, and basically, uh, you know, read all the the cyberpunk books and saw war games and all the other kind of early hacking movies and things like that. So it was always kind of this fascinating um, space for me. And um, when I started working in security, you know, as we called it back then, information security. Um, it was uh, this really interesting problem area. And as I kind of looked at it professionally, I thought, well, here's a space that's pretty new. Uh, there's lots of opportunities uh, for um, doing things that haven't been done before. And, uh, and it's really interesting. The problem's always evolving and changing. So it's not, um, you, you know, <laughs> they used to tell us back in engineering school, you, you know, you, you could end up writing software, you could end up designing, you know, microcontrollers for uh, dishwashers. Uh, so pick your career path wisely. <laughs> So I just took that to heart and said, okay, the cybersecurity stuff is pretty cool. So, um, you know, I started working on these contracts and uh, was really captivated by the problem set. And um, a couple of years after I started looking at the space kind of professionally and decided this is what I wanted to focus on, I started writing Snort. And then, um, you know, things kind of uh, snowballed from there pretty rapidly. So tell us a little bit about um, the source fire story. <laughs> okay. Well, back to Snort. Um, so, uh, you know, with uh, Snort, I started writing it. So back in the early days of my career, the way that I started to, to learn how everything worked and you know, about security and the tools and techniques and things like that, as a software uh, engineer slash uh, computer engineer, I decided to start writing my own software tools and toys just to understand how these things work. So I wrote little toy firewalls and port scanners and, um, you know, kind of vulnerability scanners. I wrote honeypots. I wrote uh, sniffers and things like that. So um, I did all these things. And uh, eventually uh, one, um, you know, one day kind of, uh, geez, I guess it was uh, 21 years ago now, uh, this month, uh, I think almost almost to the day, actually, 21 years ago, I started uh, writing this little project that I came to call Snort. And... Um, I released it as an open source project in December of 98, and it started getting users immediately. Um, so I was really kind of interested. I released it as an open source project because I wanted to investigate that as well, because all of these kind of uh, open source manifestos were really getting on people's radars in the, uh, the mid to late 90s. So um, I started writing the project and you know put it out there and wondered if I get any feedback, and I did right away. So. I started um, releasing, uh, you know, versions of Snort every couple of weeks, basically. I think um, the first year Snort was out, I did uh, 23 releases of it as an open source project. And there was this, like, groundswell of support. It was the open source um, uh, 
success story, really. Um, and as things progressed, uh, I got recruited to work for a startup out in uh, California, and I worked there for about 10 months and then ended up leaving uh, and found myself in this kind of weird place. So, you know, now we're up to the, um, the fall of uh, the year 2000, and Snort has very clearly become an incredibly popular open source technology. It's being used broadly to the point where I'm being approached by, you know, large banks and they're saying, can we give you hardware so you can maintain uh, Snort for our hardware? Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was like this very exciting time. And I looked at it as I was thinking about, well, geez, what am I going to do professionally now? Uh, because I was, you know, between jobs. Um, I thought, uh, you know, the Snort thing, uh, if I don't figure out how to make money on it, probably somebody else is going to. So maybe I ought to dedicate myself to that. So um, right about the same time, I was approached by another company that uh, was uh, interested in acquiring the uh, the IP rights for Snort from me and hiring me as, a, as an employee there. And <clears throat> I went back and forth with them and I um, thought about it really hard and thought about a variety of business models, everything from, uh, um, you know, kind of classic uh, open source uh, services model um, to, uh, you know, packaging it like on CD-ROMs and trying to get it distributed at uh, CompUSA and stuff like that. And I decided to go uh, the route that I ended up going, which was um, to uh, make an enterprise offering where um, we developed appliances, management infrastructure, and kind of the, the everything else that Snort didn't come with. So, you know, Snort as an engine did a great job doing the things that Snort needs to do, which is detecting attackers and networks. Um, but the, everything else that enterprises especially needs are all about manageability, scalability, performance, automation, and support. So that's what uh, Sourcefire was engineered to do. So I started the company out of my house in uh, Central Maryland back in um, uh, early 2001, January of 2001, and spent the first year uh, engineering the product and getting it out the door. And uh, as soon as the product was available, I had customers. Um, that were waiting. So, you know, my, my thesis that uh, there was a pent up demand for a commercial offering built around Snort that was dedicated to giving enterprises what they needed to make the technology work in their environment turned out to be correct. Um, so once I started taking down uh, uh, enterprise customers with six figure deals, uh, uh, literally um, selling over the phone and, and doing shipping and receiving out of the, uh, the front hallway of my house, um, if the venture capital community started to pay attention, it, it went from being, you know, that'll never work to, oh, maybe we should talk. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I hit the road. I got on the airplane and started flying back and forth between um, Silicon Valley and uh, um, Boston uh, doing the, um, uh, the VC route. And off we went, raised my first round and the rest is history. So at what point uh, did you start entertaining um acquisitions. Um, obviously you got acquired by Cisco. Um, how big was your team at that point? Um, what was sort of your thought process as you went through that? Um, <clears throat> well, actually there's, so Sourcefire is kind of interesting because it was, uh, uh, acquired twice. Um, a lot of people don't remember this, but back in, uh, uh the end of 2005, uh, Checkpoint, um, uh, made us a, an offer for the company that we decided to take. Um, and, uh, it was a, I think, $225 million cash deal for the company. And we said, yes, we'll take that. And uh, anybody who watched uh, watches uh, Silicon Valley on uh, HBO would have uh, heard about this whole Cepheus process um, <laughs> yes. in the last episode or two. Well, guess what? That, that's a real thing. It exists. And uh, it overturned our deal. <laughs> so it okay. uh, turns out the U.S. government was not real happy about uh, Snort being owned by uh, a company held outside the U.S. Anyway. So that happened and, uh, you know, we said, okay, we want public and um, in uh, 2013, uh, Cisco approached us and we were doing really well. We were over 500 employees. I think the day the deal closed, Sourcefire was 750 employees and we were doing about $250 million a year in revenue um, and uh, growing around uh, 35 to 40%. So, you know, we were doing great. Um, but, you know, they came in and they made us a, a very uh, good offer for the company and was seen as a, a great place to work and, um, you know, kind of uh, combining the best of what we did with uh, the best of what they did. We thought we could uh, really go into the, the broader markets and, um, you know, make an impact. So that was kind of the, the decision making behind it. And it 
turned out, uh, you know, it worked really well, but you know, 70, 76 bucks a share was, uh, certainly got our attention. Yeah. So, and then you, um, obviously stayed at Cisco for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I actually don't know how many years you stayed there. Uh, five years. Five years. And so I imagine you saw a really, um, large amount of really interesting startups. Um, obviously you're working with threat quotient, um, some ex source fire guys there. Um, but what kinds of things did you see that really interested you? Uh, in the Cisco days? Yeah. And this is good days from like startup perspectives coming. I imagine people, um, pitched you all the time. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, if you want to see the things that interest me, look at the uh, company Cisco has acquired in the last five years. They, they were the most interesting ones <laughs> to me for the most part. Um, yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, I, I had a hand in the acquisition of several of the companies. I, I would say um, I, uh, I certainly helped to um, at least get some of them on the company's radar. Um, but uh, companies like, um, like Duo uh, were super cool and they were doing really uh, – interesting and important work and, uh, you know, uh, kind of democratizing security in a way. And they were great companies with good people in them. Uh, also, uh, companies like uh, OpenDNS, for example, um, they were uh, essentially building a data set of um, DNS uh, and kind of uh, bad actors around DNS and bad domains as a result. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a method to the madness with a lot of the acquisitions that we did at Cisco and it was, um, uh, the idea was uh, kind of uh, going and finding these companies that had uh, um, data sets that were uh, universal across um, all domains. So, you know, there are some data types like uh, uh, domain names and IP addresses and uh, URLs that are universal, whether you're on a supercomputer or a cell phone, uh, they're the same everywhere. So, you know, so, some of the companies that we acquired really um, dealt in, in those data sets and being able to have visibility, uh, global visibility into those data sets and, and then asserting control, uh, things like being able to do DNS reputation and uh, kind of predictive, um, you know, uh, looking up uh, domain generation algorithms that uh, malware was using to predict which uh, um, domains would be bad and stuff like that. So um, certainly uh, a lot of those companies, Landcope um, as another example, um, they were all companies that were really interesting to me because I thought that they they filled in uh, areas that um, were going to be important uh, to, to Cisco, certainly, but were just broadly important in security. <clears throat> uh, beyond that, the threat intel stuff uh, obviously is very interesting to me. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, I'm on the board, obviously, uh, at uh, Threat Quotient. Um, so that was a, a space that uh, I've been paying attention to uh, over the years. And then, you know, looking at uh, a lot of these um, companies that are trying to figure out how to deal with. The, the world that we live in, you know, the, the world that a lot of security was engineered for was all about, uh, you know, servers and data centers and, uh, you know, user environments and, and things like that, where we could, um, you know, do uh, deploy middle boxes, right? You know, firewalls and IPSs and next gen firewalls and things like that. And the world that we're into now, you know, the data centers in motion, it's in the cloud and, and maybe it's even moving between clouds. Uh, and the users are also in motion. Now they're, you know, their cell phones and iPads and, and laptops are kind of how the world works. So if my users are in motion and actually my applications and data centers are in motion, where do I put those uh, devices that uh, previously, you know, used to provide security via inspection and uh, policy enforcement and things like that. So that frontier has been very interesting as well. And I don't think as an industry, we've really nailed uh, down where, you know, how it's going to work and where it needs to go. I, I certainly did uh, a fair amount of um, research on it uh, in the Cisco days. So speaking of the industry, you know, you talked a lot about Snort and how that, you know, that's a big open source tool. How have you seen uh, the open source community sort of embrace uh, security over the past three or five years? Like how has that changed since, you know, your days of actually standing up Snort? Um. Well, you know, Snort was a very uh, grassroots effort. Um, I think you see a lot more um, uh, intentional uh, development of open source uh, as security applications. And it's kind of interesting to me because, you know, as I have seen the the industry uh, develop over the years, I get, you know, the inquiry pretty regularly given my, my background and track record. So, you know, Marty, should we open source this, this thing? 
and because we want to, you know, get adoption and, and drive uh, usage and, you know, and, and can we monetize it like, you know, like this. Um, so it's kind of fascinating because I think there's a lot of uh, earnest efforts of people uh, trying to garner adoption um, by using the open source vehicle uh, as, a, as a mechanism to, you know, get in front of people. Um, but the, the path to monetization a lot of times is, uh, is kind of uh, difficult, you know, what you want to avoid is um, kind of rent seeking behavior. I believe this is my, my personal um, theory where, you know, here's, here's the kind of the, the freeware version of it. And then the professional version um, costs money in that, you know, it unlocks features and, and brings, you know, fundamental uh, capability to the table. Um, we tried to always avoid that with snort um, where, uh, Snort was always the best engine that we could possibly make it, and then the the um, the value add was all the things that we wrapped around it, uh, as opposed to making some kind of crippled version of Snort. And you know, if you wanted the full featured one, you'd have to pay to unlock it. Um, so I'm always kind of encouraging people to find ways to do more of the value add model as opposed to the uh, um, the you know junior version, senior version, or you know pro and, and amateur versions of uh, um, technologies. Um, and I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, efforts to build, um, you know, try to uh, build open source standards and things like that. But it, it's trickier than it seems. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we've seen some efforts out there um, like uh, we did at, um, at Cisco with uh, uh, SDN, you know, Software Defined Networks back when that was really important uh, five and six years ago. I had these big industry consortiums that were trying to build up uh, open source uh, projects like uh, Open Daylight, and um, you know they've been—I think they've been somewhat successful, but they—they um, they certainly didn't uh, take over the industry and become kind of the the center, uh, you know, kind of this core technology that everybody uh, uses and relies on. So um, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, you know, do you have an open source community that's uh, emerging because you know you've got this groundswell of support around somebody that's uh, uh, executing on solving a problem really well, or do you have kind of a, a committee that's engineering a solution uh, to try to uh, to affect an open source standard with more or less support based on how uh, bought in the the different uh, you know member states of the committee are? Great. Okay, Marty. So for every interview that we do on Securiosity, we end it on a random question, and I heard that you are a big boat guy. So where's the next place you're taking your boat? <laughs> um, well, let's see. So I, I actually uh, have uh, my boat is headed to the Caribbean right now. So I'm um, going to be uh, doing some sailing down there. I just got married a couple months ago. And our Congratulations. Be, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to be um, doing some uh, sailing in the Caribbean for our honeymoon uh, on the boat. So that'll be a lot of fun. And I've got some racing coming up also in the Caribbean this winter. It turns out, you know, uh, unless you're going to uh, the Southern Hemisphere, about the best you can do for uh, fun places to sail in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere is uh, heading down there, especially uh, from my, uh, you know, my home here on the East Coast of the United States. I, I really can't complain about uh, <laughs> heading down to the Caribbean in December. Sounds like a, a, a fun place to be. Yep, absolutely. All right, Marty, really appreciate you hopping aboard. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Thanks again to Marty for joining us, and uh, I would love to be able to be on his boat yes. all, all over the place uh, for uh, the next couple weeks. But with that, a sad close to the year, Jen, in that a story broke after we finished writing the script for this, My Beloved Wawa announced on Thursday a massive data breach where oh, no. they had malware on their payment processing systems. All like 800 of their stores were hit where we're talking like credit card numbers, names, expiration dates. All of it might have been stolen sometime between um, March of this year up until uh, December 10th, earlier this month. I cannot think of a place I shop more than Wawa. <laughs> I hit one for lunch probably three out of five work days. Do you really? Oh, uh, yeah. There's a Wawa it's in a, D.C.? Yeah, there's one uh, over on uh, 19th Street. 
19th and L. Oh, yeah. They're popping up all over the place here. We just got a Wawa by my office, too. There you go. Um, I think the entire Philadelphia, Delaware Valley region is going to need new credit and debit cards (laughs) because I literally don't know anybody in the Philadelphia area that hasn't hit a Wawa in the last nine months. Oh, man. It's... That's actually my um, coffee preference is Wawa. I would check your cards. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that you're going to be getting um, a notice saying, yeah, your card was found in this uh, database that uh, was hit. So I am grieving inside (laughs) as a brand that I love has forsaken my cybersecurity. There's a couple of people that I hang out with that are um, uh, cybersecurity people at um, certain agencies that we won't say the letters of. Okay. Um, and they only deal in cash. And I always think that's like the weird way to go because I'd never have cash. But this sometimes just makes me think like maybe I should just carry around cash and like ditch credit cards you know completely my father-in-law god rest his soul was the same way did not have uh an email address didn't have a debit card until like it it became so bad Uh, not bad but like he just like the necessity just became too much didn't do any online shopping and I used to be like, you Luddite, like, what's wrong with you? And now I think he was a genius. He I mean, was he was an absolute genius. Stay off this grid and you won't have any issues no matter where you go. So I actually, I, I, I one step further on that, I've got a friend from high school um, that if I didn't know him in high school, I would think that like he was a nut job and, and didn't work um, for where he works. Um, but he literally doesn't keep the same phone number for very long. He switches out burner phones every month because people should know his phone number. Doesn't have any social media. Like there's no, if he wants you to contact him, he will send you a new number every month. I'm not there yet, (laughs) but uh, let's, let's just, let's just start with being a more, a little bit more liquid in, in the way I make my lunch purchases. We'll start there before I go like, Full paranoid, and I'm swapping out SIM cards <laughs> in my phone um, every month. Kind of so. makes you wonder what he's seeing every month at work. <laughs> Seriously. All right. And with that, we will close out the year. Everybody, have a wonderful holiday season, and we will be back in 2020. As always, stay curious.